The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All right. So if you haven't yet already, you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. In our Advent series, which we've called God Incarnate, what we're doing is we are sifting through the Old Testament, looking for the various hints and the various prophecies that point to the the coming king, that point to the Messiah who is to come, the one that God promised to send to sort out the problem that was caused in Genesis 3. When when sin came into the world, God straight away promised that he would send a a saviour, someone who would come to have victory over, over Satan and the snake. And this is what we celebrate. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the birth of Jesus. That when Jesus was born, this wasn't just an isolated incident. It wasn't just a, an event that took place in a vacuum that was out of the blue. That it wasn't God's plan 2.0. It wasn't Him pushing away the Old Testament, and going, "Okay, I'm just going to restart this and do this again." It was actually the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecies waiting for the Messiah to come. And so uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, just to read it out again, this is, uh, this is an important passage in our Bible. Like all the, all, every single page of the Bible is important, but there are pieces, there are certain sections where God's word really stands out, where it's important to, to get the overall structure, to get the overall storyline of the Bible. And Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 is one of those points. Let me read it for you again. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let's pray and then we'll get into this text. Father, we ask that by your word this morning that our hearts would be warmed to your grace. Our hearts would be open to receiving your love, open to experiencing your mercy. That our souls, Lord, would be willing to be willing to submit to you this morning, Father. That our, that our minds, that we'd be willing to subject our agenda and our, what our plans are to your plans. And Lord, we pray for our hands, Father, that we would be willing to serve you and, and lay down our lives for the sake of the wonderful joy of following you. And so, Lord, we ask for these things as you, as you lead us through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, open this up for us. Direct our eyes towards the beauty of Jesus Christ and help us to see that he is just simply more wonderful than anything else in the world, Lord. And we thank you for that. Amen. In 1992, the Disney movie Aladdin reached our cinemas and introduced children of that vintage, like myself, I was, I was a young boy back then, 1992, introduced us to the idea of a genie in a bottle a powerful being who could grant wishes. And our, uh, our imaginations were set ablaze. We used to fantasize, what would you wish for? If you had those three wishes, even if you just had one wish, what would you wish for? What would be the thing that you would wish for? 
If you were to encounter the lamp and rub the lamp and get the genie out of the bottle, what would you wish for? Let me ask you that question. What would you wish for? And I don't, I don't intend that you answer me right now. What would it be? Would it be money? Just for your bank account to be filled up? Would it be fame or influence or power? Maybe it would be health or health for someone that you know, world peace. Maybe you're the kind of person who would be really cheeky and wish for more wishes. I'm not sure if that's allowed, but you'd wish for that. But whatever you'd wish for, your answer probably gives us a little bit of an insight into what we think the blessed life is, what it means to be blessed. For one person, the idea of of just the easing of financial burdens, that's the blessed life. For another person, it's fame or, or power or influence amongst other people, that's the blessed life. For some, it is control over your circumstances. For others, it is physical beauty. If, if I just had that, then I would be living the blessed life. Even if you are the kind of person who would wish for more wishes, maybe the blessed life for you is a life of endless options. That's what the blessed life looks like. This week, as a family, we had a bit of an encounter with what our children believe the best life is, the, the blessed life is. I'm not sure if you're aware of what Elf on a Shelf is. Some of you would be aware of that. Some of that, that will just go over your heads. It is new for us as a family. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I won't go into too many details, but it would suffice to say that all of a sudden, my kids believed that they needed to get an elf on the shelf to be happy. That's, that's the blessed life. As long as you've got an elf on a shelf, then that's great. And the marketing behind elf on a shelf is brilliant. It's terrible for parents, but it's brilliant for the people who own Kmart and all those other corporations because you've got to go and buy one of these elves and then you've got to put, like, you can get outfits for it apparently and all these extra things and it's this big game, it's this big hullabaloo and we, we wrestle with it as a family and, and I, if you do Elf on a Shelf, there's no judgment from me. Honestly, there isn't. We've decided that we're not going to go ahead with it this year and we just decided to hide other toys around the house and that's fine as well. But the, the idea was... The kids believed, if I, if I have the elf, if we get the elf on the shelf, then the dark days will be over. Then the, like, the, will be, it'll be magic, endless, happy days. And it gave us the opportunity as a family, as parents, to sit there with them, talking with them, hey, hey, you know that this isn't actually going to make you forever happy. You'll get it, and then after a few days, you'll get bored of it, and you'll want something else. And I'd like to say, I'd like to think that as an adult, I'm immune from that kind of thing, but I'm not. Yesterday, as a family, we went to the new display village at Aura. And when you go through those display villages, if you don't know what a display village is, it's just like a couple of streets of brand new houses that are designed by interior designers, and they are professionally cleaned, and nobody lives there. So it's just like the most impossible dream. But... The Aura Display Village is kind of like the adult equivalent of Elf on a Shelf. We walk through and we're like, ooh, if only our 
master bedroom was the size of our current living and kitchen area, then we'd be happy. If only we, that's the issue. We, we need five TVs, not two. That's ridiculous. Oh, this is what we need. And we just found ourselves being enamored with the, with the beauty of it all. And it is very, very great. It's all really nice. But we start to believe, oh, if we got this, then the dark days would be over. Then we would be forever happy. It's like we have this posture hardwired into our hearts that desires to live the kind of life that we could call blessed. Almost as if there's a, a shadowy memory from our past parents, from our first parents, of what Eden was like. That we were designed to live the blessed life. It's like that we're always yearning for something more than what we have. And so our ears should perk up when we read Genesis 12, 1-3, and particularly that final line of the very important words from God to Abraham, that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It sounds great, right? This is a massive promise from God. The promise is that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a wonderful thought that our, the blessing that we so desire is matched by this massive promise from God. But is, is that material blessing, is, is that what he's, God's talking about? Is it beautiful houses that he's talking about? Is it elves on shelves? Is that what God's talking about? The answer is, of course, no. The kind of blessing that God has in mind for all the peoples on the earth is far more wonderful than a beautiful house, far more exciting than an elf on every shelf. The blessing that God intends to bring his people into is truly sublime. Now, these three verses, like I mentioned just a few moments earlier, these few verses are incredibly important. And uh, they're some of the most important verses in the, in the overall structure and narrative of the Bible. And, and we would do well to, to focus on them. We would absolutely, these verses absolutely deserve our undivided attention. But we are going to divide these verses up this morning because our interest being in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that in this last line that all, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, that's got something to do specifically with Jesus. So just to give you some context for Genesis 12, the situation there is that God had come to make a covenant with this guy named Abraham or Abram at this point. Now, covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties together uh, that, that bring them into a permanent and binding relationship with specific promises and claims and obligations on both sides. And Abraham, from this point onwards, becomes one of the most important people, one of the most important characters in the entire Bible. But up until this point, he's just another name on the page. In fact, if you read through Genesis 11, and I tried counting, but it got a little bit confusing, but there was upwards of around 60 or 70 different names in Genesis, listed in Genesis 11, and Abram is just one of them. He's just one of the names that is mentioned there. He's basically a nobody. The Bible doesn't allow us to think that Abraham did something that caught God's attention or that he possessed some quality that was useful to God. In fact... As you read the account of Abraham's life, you start to wonder, why did God choose Abraham? He kind of, was, he was a bit of a disaster enough for half of his life. It, was, it really went badly. It really went pear-shaped. By all accounts, 
Abraham was just another member of the family of God that had walked away from worshipping the one true God and was at that point worshipping idols. Nevertheless, God came to Abraham to make this covenant, promising him land, promising him a bright future, promising him fame, promising him blessing and uncountable descendants. It's a mammoth promise. And what stands out in in all of this is the fact that God is the one who's going to do it. Five times in these three verses, God says, I will. I will be the one who who does this. I will be the one who accomplishes this. And very importantly, what we see acted out in Genesis 12 and then what we see actually specifically said in Genesis 15 is that Abraham actually believed God. God came to make this, uh, this covenant with him and Abraham believed him. And that was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. He believed what God had said, and that is what mattered. And that brings us to the final line, which is this soaring promise that all of peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That line is not an afterthought. It's not the way you sign off on an email. This is the crescendo, and it's simply massive. It's a gigantic promise of blessing to the whole world, which means that God's benevolent actions and intentions and plans right from the start were never just for Israel, but actually were rather intended for the entire world. They were included, that God's plan for the entire world, Jews and Gentiles were included in the blueprint of his salvific promises. Literally, all the peoples, all the people groups, all the clans, all the families will be blessed through him. It's a promise to the whole world. And so this is where we should ask, what did God mean then by blessing? If this is a promise to the whole world, what does the blessing mean? What's this blessed life? Does God mean material blessings or does he have something far richer in mind? If the covenant to Abraham is a promise to bless all the peoples of this world, what does that mean for us? Living thousands of years later, living thousands of kilometers away, what does that mean for us today? Well, the good news is that we don't have to speculate about what that means because the Apostle Paul actually wrote a bit of a commentary on this in Galatians chapter 3. He answers that question. What is this blessing? He answers that question in a letter that he wrote to a church in Galatia. So while you turn into Galatians, if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 3 right now, just to get your bearings, and the words will be on the screen behind me, Paul's letter to the Galatians was aimed at correcting the false teaching that had entered the church in Galatia. There were apparently some false teachers who, who were there who were teaching that you, had to, you couldn't be saved from your sins merely by believing and receiving what Jesus Christ had done on the cross. It had to be supplemented. It wasn't enough to distrust in what Jesus had done. You had to do more. And, and, and specifically, they were talking about circumcision. Speaking to the Gentiles, you had to be circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, then you weren't saved. And Paul's argument was, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, I'm kind of paraphrasing there, but this is the same chapter where Paul says, you foolish Galatians. So I feel like that's a fairly uh, accurate paraphrase. He's saying, if you try and supplement or add to God's grace with circumcision, you are shooting yourself in the foot. If you're trusting in your obedience to the law, to one part of the law to save you, you will have to then rely on your obedience to all of the law to save you. And no one can do that. 
you're nullifying God's grace. He literally says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because you have to obey all of it to be saved, and no one can do that. And the same thing applies to us today. If you think that you've got a better shot at being saved from your sins because of something that you've done for God, or if you think that you're going to have a particular edge or a particular advantage on Judgment Day because of your track record, you are putting yourself under a curse. If your faith in God is actually more like your faith in your obedience to God, you'll be judged for every single act of disobedience to God. So what does that have to do with Genesis 12? Well, Genesis 12 is central to Paul's argument to point out that God's promises of blessing was not just for the physical descendants of Abraham, but was actually for the whole world. Reading Galatians 3, verse 8, he says, Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Okay, so if we're reading that right, Paul has just said that God's words to Abraham, the second half of Genesis 12, 3, Way back, in, way back then, that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, that was actually an early proclamation of the gospel. If we're reading that right, that's what Paul was saying. When, when God spoke to Abraham, he was proclaiming the gospel. Paul's going to have to explain himself, which he does so by saying, all the peoples on earth being blessed is the exact equivalent to God justifying the Gentiles by faith. They refer to the same thing. That's what he means by it. How does that work, though? How does it work? How is it that that's what Genesis 3 means? The answer is in the words, through you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's God speaking to Abraham. It will be a descendant of Abraham that all the peoples on earth will receive this blessing. And Paul makes that distinction clear in verse 16, saying, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, to your seed, which is, who is, Christ. Here's the point. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the second half of that. The blessing is Jesus Christ. The blessing of Genesis 12.3 is Jesus Christ. Last week, as we were looking in Genesis chapter three, Genesis, as we were looking at Genesis 3, looking at the, uh, the story of Adam and Eve sinning and the snake coming in to tempt Eve, we, we looked at God's uh, immediate action plan, how he was going to deal with sin. And we learned that God was going to send someone to have victory over Satan and that someone was going to be a descendant of Adam and Eve. He would be from the human race. He would be a person who would come and do it. And that person would come as a snake crusher. And then this week, the, the search gets narrower. And it's not just going to be any person. It's going to come from the family. He's, he's going to come from the family of Abraham. He's going to be one of Abraham's descendants. And not only is, going to, is he going to be the snake crusher, he's going to be the blessing. He's going to become the one who blesses. Jesus Christ himself is the blessing. Here's why Jesus is the most sublime blessing. Because without him, you and I are still under the curse of sin. 
Sin is serious. One of the great problems that our world seems to have with Christianity right now is that it is what we would call sin. And the problem, I think, is, has got to do with the fact that they don't really, a lot of people don't really think that sin is that serious. Just remember this. Sin is serious. Sin is a stain that we cannot wash off. And sin, those who are stained by sin are judged because of their sins. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to get rid of our sin. We need someone to wash us clean. We need someone to get us out of the predicament that we're in of being under the curse. Someone had to take on the burden of our curse so that we could escape it. And, and Paul says in verse 13 of Galatians 3, this is exactly who Jesus is. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose, and here's that quote in Genesis 12, 3 again, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. The most sublime blessing, better than fast cars or high-def TVs or rock-hard abs or anaconda gift vouchers or Hampton-style houses or elves on shelves, is Jesus Christ. Because of his great love for us, God sent his son Jesus to, as Paul said, redeem us from the curse. To redeem means to purchase at a cost. Jesus purchased us at the cross for the highest price. He became the curse. He became sin by taking our sin upon his shoulders and being nailed to the cross. Like the old hymn, my sin, oh the joy of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, my sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And that's not because we did something to impress God. That's not because we did something to commend ourselves to God that made God go, oh, he looks like a pretty good candidate, or she, she looks like she might be able to do, like, follow me, that's good. I'll, I'll save her. And we've got to get this into our minds. Christians are not people who are better than others, and so God saved us. We did not, so we are saved not because we did something to earn it. God did not save us because we showed great potential in contributing to his, his kingdom or because we make really great Christians. There's no such thing as someone who would make a really great Christian. We are only saved because of God's grace for us. His grace is his favor that is brimming with love and kindness and mercy and open arms to receive people who are racked with guilt and shame. God receives people with the very worst records. You might be sitting here thinking to yourself, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how badly I've done it. You don't know how many times I've done it. And you don't know how recently it was that I, that I last did it. This obviously doesn't apply to me. If that's you this morning, let me tell you this. You need, to un, you need to understand what grace is. It is God's unmerited, unbelievable, and unexplainable favor on you. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. 
So quit your excuses for not drawing close to God. Because you're right, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's still a free gift to you despite our sin. The greater our sin, the greater his grace. Here's the thing. Abraham, as important as he was, was also chosen because of God's grace. He, like you and I, needed saving from, our, from his sins. And the blessing that he was promised was that God's grace would flow through one of his descendants to the whole world in God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins and God in his mercy and love sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins and redeem us from our sins. And that's exactly what we're celebrating at Christmas time. That God came down at Christmas. And if you want to hear something cool, the way that it happened was exactly as Genesis 12, 3 said. When you read about the very beginnings of the birth of Jesus, it's all about grace and blessing. So in Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you can. In Luke chapter 1, we're told that God sent the, the, uh, the angel Gabriel to a town called Nazareth to, the, to a virgin named Mary to tell her that she would be the one who would bring the Christ into the world. That's an incredible thing, right? Like the, the world had been longing for and waiting for this Messiah to come. The, the Jews knew that someone was going to come. Not exactly sure who or when or how, but an angel turns up and says to this Young teenager, you're going to be the one who brings him into the world. That's massive. That's massive. And when Gabriel told this to Mary, he called her, in verse 28, the favoured woman, saying that she found favour with God, in verse 30. And that word, favour, is actually a translation of the Greek word charis, which is the same word that we use for grace. She's the one who found grace in God, with God. It wasn't, because that she had, it wasn't because she had some great pedigree or because she had proven herself to be faithful. She wasn't sinless as some people claim, but like us, she needed saving herself. God's favor on Mary was undeserved, unmerited favor, and she found grace with God. In the same way that God came to Abraham by grace, he came to Mary by grace as well. And then if you read on, Elizabeth, when she goes and visits her sister, sorry, her cousin, Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, was also found to be pregnant with John the Baptist. And, and as she arrives and sees Elizabeth, you might know the story, as she arrives and sees Elizabeth, John the Baptist in, in utero leaps for joy as the saviour of the world in Mary's womb is brought close to him. Crazy story. Awesome story. And, and Elizabeth then calls Mary, she's been called the favoured one, the one with grace. Now Elizabeth calls her the blessed one. She says, blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. And blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would, would fulfil what has been spoken to her. The promise to Abraham was that the world will be blessed with God's redemptive grace in Jesus Christ. The reality for Mary, though, was that she was giving birth to him. And I think we can safely say, that is what Christmas is all about. 
the grace of Jesus Christ. Christmas is the fulfilling of a promise that God made thousands of years ago that he was going to bless all the people on the world, in the world, all the people groups, with the most wonderful, profound gift that mankind would no longer have to bear the cost for their sin. The king himself would come and pay that price for us. So the question then is, what does it look like for us to live the blessed life? What does that mean? Like if, if this blessing is, has come to us, what does it mean to live the blessed life that God intended for us? Well, if we read on in what Mary says, she in many ways actually explains this to us. In what has become known as Mary's Magnificat, which is a, simply an utterance of praise, she, in this song that she sings, this poem, we get this tussle between those who experience the blessedness of God and then those who don't, those who, uh, who reject God. So after seeing Elizabeth and experiencing this grace and experiencing this blessing herself, Mary erupts in praise. And if you pay attention to it, her song points out two different groups of people. We have the humble and the proud. We have the lowly and the mighty. We have the hungry and the rich. So reading from verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Note there, Mary needed a Savior. She needed her son to take away her sins. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we should at that point ask, why? She says, because the mighty one, pay attention to that word, mighty one, the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. That's key, the mercy of God, those, on the, of those who fear him, that's key. He has done a mighty deed. Again, pay attention. The mighty one doing a mighty deed with his arm. And he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So Mary is fully tapping into God's mercy-filled promises to Abraham all those years ago and his descendants. And did you see the two groups of people that I mentioned there? The first group is those who fear God and so receive God's mercy. They're the ones who are humble. They're the humble who God looks upon with favor. The lowly who God exalts and the hungry who God satisfies. These are the ones who acknowledge, I don't have it all together. In fact, my sin has made me a hopeless wreck. I've made an utter mess of my life and I am hopeless without a saviour. And so they come to God in humility knowing I need Jesus. Are you part of that group? The other group are those who don't fear God. 
the ones, the, the proud who God scatters, the mighty who God topples, and the rich who God sends away empty. These are the ones who think that they are self-sufficient. These are the ones who, who treat God as an optional extra. These are the ones who reject His grace, who, who think that God's grace is just not enough. His grace isn't enough, and it needs to be supplemented. These are the ones who go, oh, you know, His grace is good, but I need to do more. I need to add to it. These are the ones who think it's not me who needs God. It's God who needs me. And they don't come to God, not really. Are you in that group? And if you pay attention to that, the mighty act from the mighty God, the mighty act that God does with his arm that Mary mentioned there, that was that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save people from God's judgment. That's the mighty act of God. And there will be some who proudly reject God. In their pride, they'll reject God thinking, I don't really need his grace. My sin isn't that bad. Pride makes us think my sin isn't that bad. And on the flip side of that, pride also makes us think my sin is greater than God's grace. Both of those things stem from pride. These are the people who try to outrun God's judgments with their best efforts, but it will be futile. The other side to the mighty act that God does with his arm is that some will receive his grace. Instead of trying to outrun God's judgment, they'll look at their terrible track record and their hopeless state, and they'll look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means to save them from their sins. And instead of trying to outrun God's judgment, they'll instead cast themselves upon his mercy, trusting themselves to Jesus Christ. Again from that hymn, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. How do do we live the blessed life? How do we live the blessed life? It's to know, and I mean really know, that our sin has made us lowly and we are in need of a saviour. And it's to know, really know, of God's grace towards us. God's infinite love towards us. And when we say us, we've got to be careful, guys. Because so often we say, yeah, God loves us, absolutely. And what we mean deep down, or what we think deep down is, he loves everybody around me. But probably not me. But maybe if God was honest, he'd, he might admit that. I'm the one he doesn't love. That's not the blessing that God intends for the whole world. That's not the blessed life. The blessed life is to go, God's love is for me. He loves me. He's put his love on me. He likes me. He cherishes me. He's interested in me. He draws close to me. He wants me. We've got to get that into our minds. And in doing that, we'll humble ourselves before God. This is what the Apostle Peter means when he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. If we can be honest, the pursuit of the blessed life is a desperate attempt to make sure that our needs and our desires are taken care of. Did you know that God cares about you? Did you know that God cares about you enough to crush his son under your sin with his mighty hand? The blessed life is when we humble ourselves under the gospel, entrusting ourselves to his love and to his mercy and to his grace and enjoying his love forever. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.